about eight days after Jesus said these things, he took Peter, John, and James and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes flashed white like lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, were there talking with him. They were clothed with heavenly splendor and spoke about Jesus' departure, which he would achieve in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were almost overcome by sleep, but they managed to stay awake and saw his glory as well as the two men with him. As the two men were about to leave Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good that we're here. We should construct three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he didn't know what he was saying. Peter was still speaking when a cloud overshadowed them. As they entered the cloud, they were overcome with awe. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Even as the voice spoke, Jesus was found alone. They were speechless at, and at the time told no one what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sarah. Mark Twain once said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. A priest friend posted an image from Mark Chagall that I'd never seen before this week. Uh, he's a modernist painter from France, known as the quintessential Jewish artist of the 20th century. And in the early 40s, he painted a version of the Holy Family. He painted a lot of Christian themes. Um, and this was titled, quote, unquote, the Burning Village Ukrainian Family in 1943. The circumstances of this week are obviously not a one-to-one repeat, but maybe a rhyme as Vladimir Putin's troops breached Ukraine's borders and began an aerial assault on their cities and villages. And very few in this room, if any, were even alive for the first instance of that. But we all bear kind of in our collective memory what happened. Uh, We all have some awareness, however vague, of time that kind of folds over on itself. How, how time feels heavy and sluggish in these, in these intense times. Our, uh, sometimes the ways these days that we respond to that is through like doom scrolling and updates that kind of clog our ability to be present and to sit in prayer. And, and oftentimes that happens because we don't know how to pray. I'm not, I'm not here to tell you exactly how to pray because I'm not sure either. Um, are we allowed to, like Peter Lightheart says, to, to sing the mean psalms at these times? When, you know, or If we're committed to the idea that we flirted with last week, that we live in a world full of enemies, um, and certainly we do, and we also live in the world with an enemy that, that tries to steal, kill, and destroy, how can we be in solidarity with those who are being threatened without also kind of joining in enemy-like bloodthirst. Like how can we call forth and rely on a God to show up when all of the evidence kind of points to God's absence or violence to despair? These are really live questions today and this week, and I'm sure you all have felt them too. Today is a church holiday that's kind of about that fold over, 
that rich, dense time, that heaviness, the uncertainty. Sometimes it feels like a, like a glitch in the space-time continuum, this transfiguration story that Sarah just read. Jesus is on Mount Tabor praying with his friends, and this is a well-attested activity in the Gospel accounts, them praying together. However, this time, something from the past, or maybe from the future, like flashes before their eyes. All of this is so surreal. Maybe more accurately, all of it is like hyper-real. It's too real. It's overflowingly real. The past, with the law and the prophets and all of God's history, is flooding into the present and fulfilling to overflowing uh, with this future image of dazzling, white, bright glory that's being shown kind of in double exposure. Do we know what that looks like? You can talk to Alan Baker about double exposure. It seems that the whole world is being shown on this mountaintop in Jesus. The whole world, past, present, and future, in this moment. And it is unstable in a good way. It's charged with God's grandeur. This is what any good mountaintop experience consists of, and maybe you've had one of those. Maybe it was at youth camp or on a vacation where you were looking out and you could feel the glory and you, you were certain of that presence. But what is happening here is, is happening in the midst of all sorts of strangeness and improbability. This, is, this stuff of encounter with God feels dense, it feels heavy, and it's no coincidence that the Hebrew word for holy is kavod, and it's something like a weight word. It's heavy. It's heavy. It's full. It feels great, and it feels fearful to be at the nexus of past, present, and future, and their friend Jesus, who they've walked with, who they've learned from, who they've witnessed countless healings and miracles with, now seems to them strange, foreign, other. Jesus seems kind of ahead of time and out of place for them. Or maybe they're just kind of behind and confused. Maybe that's what it feels like these days to be walking with Jesus, that we're just kind of behind and confused. We don't know what is going on. And this all comes in the gospel story. It's always good when you drop into these passages to go, to go back and to go forward. And all of this comes right after Jesus had just told everyone, all of you who want to come after me, who want to follow me, must say no to yourselves. You deny yourselves. Take up your cross daily and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who, want to, all who will lose their lives because of me will save them. This is like a crisis-level enigma that Jesus is presenting them with. Too big for their frame. This is like if you've seen Jaws when they decide we're going to need a bigger boat right now. The disciples, and don't, don't judge the disciples. Like, when you read these stories, step into their shoes because they're so often us. Like, the disciples in these gospel stories, if you read through the gospels, <laughs> they're famously narcoleptic in the, in the gospels. They're always falling asleep. It's, it's all too often the story, but in, in this story, this is like when they actually get it. They finally muster up enough strength to stay awake, and boy, does it pay off. They see Jesus' glory flash right in front of them. 
Something too beautiful for their old frame of reference. I love Peter's response. And Peter is especially like a stand-in for us. He's the rock upon which the church is built. So Peter is kind of like the every person of the church sort of thing. And, and Peter goes on so often as we do. And after seeing Moses and Elijah, like these are the two like goats, like the greatest of all time in, in Old Testament Hebrew scripture. They're flanking Jesus, the law and the prophets, the whole shebang. And Peter breaks the stunned silence with, this is all he could get. Master, it's good that we're here. We should build three tabernacles for each of you. This is actually not an insane plan, right? (laughs) it's, It's about what I think any of us might try to do. It's maybe the best idea or thought that we could come up with. He's trying to prolong this. He's trying to house the holy. This is Peter at an amazing concert sticking his iPhone up to try to film it so that it would last longer and he can preserve it and he can tell all his friends about it or invite them to it. This is when Titus and I went to Cameron Indoor Stadium last week. This is why when when we took all this video of them going berserk, it, it just wasn't that exciting when we got home and tried to show it to the rest of the family, right? And so this is what Peter's doing. He's trying to capture and preserve. He's trying to make it last. He tries to make a dwelling for each of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, a temple or a shrine. And we're told afterwards, the gospel writer Luke kind of throws shade on him and says, Peter didn't know what he was saying. His was doubtlessly a plan based on love and humility, but it was a hospitality too small. Peter's impulse was to make room for something that is uncontainable. It's just that unwieldiness about God that drives us nuts, especially in these times that are so unstable and uncertain. And it's this unwieldiness that that mutes Peter's explanations. We imagine Peter not knowing what he's saying might go on and on because you you don't know what you don't know and Peter might keep going. But just then... He is overshadowed by a cloud and overcome with awe. Overshadowed. This seems to be kind of God's exact MO when things are most bleak and confusing. God arrives out of time and out of place. Ahead of time and out of place. This is a feature of who God is, not a bug. Like, this isn't actually something odd that is happening on this Mount of Transfiguration. This is, this is who and how God is. We, we might even imagine if the apostle, if the, the disciples, apostles had stayed awake more often, maybe they would have seen this more regularly, right? Because this is how God acts. This is the God who arrives, the God who arrives hovering over the waters of chaos and void. This is the God who arrives, appearing to Abram and Sarai in the barrenness and despair of old age and empty wombs. This is a God who arrives, inviting Moses, who is just a stuttering shepherd, to a burning but not consumed bush on the roadside. This is a God who arrives through the prophet's imagining of reanimating a whole valley full of long dead bones that are dry and and putting them back together. This is a God who arrives in the whirlwind voice 
to the long-suffering Job who's had multiple of his worst days of his life that he could ever imagine, who says, where were you? And reframes his complaint and right-sizes him to a creation that is also groaning for redemption. This is a God who arrives to marry and overshadows her, an unwed teen, and brings about the consent, let it be, which would not only change the world, but would change the whole of creation. This is the God who arrives in Jesus. God who arrives in a Jesus. We can, we can drop the pin on Jesus' precise location of God's word and work. We, we can drop a pin and hear exactly what it sounds like when someone is preaching good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, etc., etc. But God also arrives in a cloud of confusion and wonder and takes away any illusions of our own control or manipulation or power. God just arrives. And it's often at the times when we least expect it and most need it. Kelly Lattimore, who's a, a contemporary icon writer and, and wrote this icon, if you want to see more of the color, the screen's really bad today. It's on this monitor, but he had been commissioned to write this icon to create this image for a church about transfiguration. And he was hanging out with his um, young cousin and, and bringing it up on, on the computer screen after he had uh, manually created it. And his, I think, Photoshop glitched. And this is what it looked like. <laughs> Talk about a feature and not a bug. Like this glitch was better than his image. And, and he, he talked about this. Uh, in a, kind of an artist statement. He says, like Peter in Matthew 17, we're tempted to try and create our own transfigurations, create our own booths. Um, although we often mean well, and we use grand displays of music, liturgy, and art to bring, quote, the divine down to earth, the thing is, what we are trying to contain is always right in front of us. It is divine that Jesus doubled down being human, wounds and all, Peter fails to see that Jesus cannot be confined in one location. He can't tie down, domesticate the, the wild spirit of God's kingdom. And we're being called to follow Jesus to Jerusalem, into the unknown. The light we think we hold has already been reflecting and scattering in all directions. So, this is the, the transfiguration challenge to all of us, and I think it's threefold. And I, I promise you're about to be fr as frustrated with these three life-changing spiritual practices as the disciples probably were when Jesus told them to do something, because they're not things that we don't already know. First, pray. <laughs> Disclaimer, prayer doesn't change anything until it does. <laughs> Prayer doesn't change anything until it does. What if we considered prayer less of an exercise of changing God's mind and more of an exercise of communion, that we are drawing near to God, who is already drawn near to us, and we are attuning our hearts and desires with God's. In prayer, uh, it, is, it is often more, mo most praying is just showing up. Most praying is just showing up. That's, that's why we do midweek morning prayer on the front steps of church most Wednesdays for the whole existence of Oak Church, whether it's rain, sleet, or snow. I, I, these days, I think we're better than the post office uh, with our record, right? 
But we're out there not because God needs our prayer. God doesn't need anything. God delights in our prayer, sure. It's not because it's always very spiritually invigorating to be out there, but because showing up in prayer again and again over the course of a long time makes us into the sort of people who recognize the God who arrives. Makes us into the sort of people when we pray and we pray and we pray and often when we don't hear anything but our own voice in prayer, it makes us into the sort of expectant people who can recognize when God actually shows up and answers those prayers in ways that shock and surprise us. Even sometimes when God shows up in ways that are out of time and and out of place. This is why the theologian can say to clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of the uprising of the disorder of the world because prayer both attends to the disordered state of our world as desperate as it is and it puts up a flare for the God who has a habit of arriving in desperate times and places. So we're to pray. We're just to pray, even when we don't know how, even when we don't know what, even when our prayers seem too small and our words feel really clumsy because prayer is a craft that we practice and an exercise of trust that the Spirit is going to gather our clumsy small words and put them together into something and that they are going to uh, be presented to Jesus and on the lips of Jesus to, to God, they're going to be heard and they're going to be acted on by the God who arrives. So we pray and we also we stay awake. This, this might be the biggest challenge for us all right now. We're all exhausted. Like literally staying awake might be the biggest challenge. We're exhausted and we have short attention spans. So I'm telling you to stay awake. <laughs> staying awake is easier said than done. I had a mentor in college of all times because like you're so busy and have so much to do in college. Um, but he used to talk about how napping is a spiritual discipline. Napping is a spiritual discipline. This might not have been the right audience to preach this to. He, he reminded us that in napping, it, it decenters our ideas about productivity, and it, it reminds us that there's more than enough time and resources for us to purpose to nod off for a half an hour here or there. It, it's, it, God is still running this world. I think it's sound advice for these many Sabbaths here or there for us even today. But the challenge, more than our physical eyelids staying awake, the challenge is for us to stay awake with our lives in attention. It's where we aim our desires and how we form our imaginations. What if, bear with me here, what if the, what if the reason Jesus always tells parables using common things isn't because he's like a really good generous orator or like communicator who's always looking around for illustrations or that he's some sort of magician who's always going to challenge himself with how can I turn this random object into something that is kind of God, God-ish, right? What if the reason he's always pulling stuff into his gospel proclamation is because Jesus is like an improv actor who's always saying yes and or like a freestyle rapper who's always looking around and seeing everything he needs already there 
burning bushes, altars in the world out of yeast and mustard seeds and loaves and fish in a kid's lunchbox that are waiting to be transfigured. Or maybe for Jesus, they already were transfigured. And he's just waiting for us to notice. Um, this sort of wakefulness can really be life-changing. It can really, it can really be consequential. Barbara Brown Taylor talks about wh what is saving her life, and she says her life is, is uh, being saved by the conviction that there is no spiritual treasure to be found apart from the bodily experiences of human life on earth. Her life depends on engaging the most ordinary physical activities with the most exquisite attention she can give them. Her life depends on ignoring all touted distinctions between sac sacred and secular, physical and spiritual body and soul. What is saving my life now is becoming more fully human, trusting there is no way to God apart from the real life in the real world. And it's Jesus' real life in the real world that is a revelation of what it actually means to be fully, truly human. When we are in Christ, that is who we are and who we are becoming. So we pray and we stay awake. And the last thing, again, this is going to be life-changing for you. Get ready. Listen. <laughs> Listen. So the obvious consequence of all that praying and paying attention should be good listening. After all, God's people, their constitutive prayer has always been a prayer that starts with the word Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one. So, as we read in Luke's gospel, we see that this isn't necessarily the case. Having glimpsed God's glory coming ahead of time and out of place, and shortly thereafter witnessing Jesus freeing a seizing child from the grip of a demon, this is the passage right after us, they have the same old arguments flaring up between them about prestige and power and status. They're, they're just not listening. It seems that they listen to the the part about Jesus ushering in this kingdom, but conveniently they, they left out the whole lose your life to gain it part. Verses 47 and 48 says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, gathered up a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me receives the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Had they listened carefully, maybe they would have understood what Jesus' coming exodus would be about. It says Jesus' departure, that word is, is exodus. And it is, it is this exodus would, would include welcoming the little one, surely, but also casting out healing, proclaiming good news, confronting the powers of his day. You see, this is, this Jesus' exodus is rhyming the history of God's redemption of God's people through the Red Sea, that exodus, making a way out of no way. The future also mysteriously kind of rhymes backwards into the present of, of Jesus. Who he is and what he's done, where he's going, and what he's making is all present in the same place. That's why he's dazzling white, because this is, this is more than now. 
and trust friends. This confusing cloud of unknowing that the disciples enter into, that cloud is God. That cloud is God. You see, you can rely on God's presence in Jesus. Maybe it's easier to see, but I doubt it. <laughs> it's easy to, easy to see that when you were walking with Jesus, um, what he's doing, we hear Jesus' words, and so this cloud of unknowing is the threatening thing for us. But if you're walking with Jesus, don't be shocked if things start to get a little nebulous for you. In fact, be surprised if they don't. You can call this deconstruction if you like, but most often I think what is happening in that cloud, that strange cloud, is that God is unbundling our tight packages of faith many times to make a lighter load. That God is proclaiming, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Just listen to him. Simplify things. Refocus. And that is what this next season of Lent is about, is a refocusing journey where we, we reenact God's, God's exodus, God's, God's salvation that is offered to us as Jesus heads to Jerusalem, to the cross and through the cross for the resurrection and new creation. We, we are readied in this journey for what Mako Fujimura has coined the new newness, that Jesus brings a new newness in his mission in our lives and world. This is strange, and it is dynamic, and it is a confusing new reality. If anyone is in Christ, bang, new creation. This new newness right in the place of the old, even sometimes if you don't feel it even sometimes if you rely on someone else to notice it for you. This requires us to be really good listeners, really close followers, like apprentices of Jesus who, like when it comes down to it, after all the, like, the glitchy bluster and majesty are over, we need to be the sort of followers of Jesus who are content and dialed into Jesus alone. That's, that's the end of this passage. All of this is happening, these fireworks and what we imagine like CGI, and then it just says, while they were in the cloud, there was just Jesus alone. Sometimes our listening will be like a, a really active listening. This has been great in a Zoom era where you just want someone to know that your screen isn't frozen, so you nod and uh-huh, even when you're on mute. Maybe that'll be what our listening is like. But sometimes it'll just be the sort of listening that is just stunned silence of people left speechless by God's arrival. Just don't know what to say. Don't know how to articulate that. Don't know how to describe it. But God showed up for us. And it is recognizing that and naming that and having the courage to be left speechless. But in our speechlessness, not be immobile or uninvited. This is the transfiguration of God's arrival in our midst. Will you all pray with me? God, when we don't have words to pray, give us words or give us good and rich silence. When we are not wakeful people, wake us up. Give us open eyes and hearts and hands, uh, attentive spirits, curious and generous, uh, able to wonder. And Lord, when we um, 
don't listen well, unplug our ears so that we can listen, open our hearts that um, you make an indelible impression that uh, we go back to again and again and give us the courage to be silent. We thank you for the ways that you arrive in our lives, in our world, again and again. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.